Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're here listening to some of the conversations myself and my co-hosts, Dr. Emma Kennedy, Jessica Crowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions of consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know and get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we have with us Dr. Kathy Atkinson and Dr. Louise Jones. Dr. Kathy Atkinson is a tutor in educational and child psychology at the University of Manchester and the curriculum director of the initial doctorate program for educational psychology training. She's currently working in schools and alternative provisions. Her research interests include motivational interviewing, child and adolescent mental health, the role of EPs in therapeutic support, post-16 practice, and the role of sports and exercise in well-being. Dr. Louise Jones graduated from educational and psychology doctorate at the University of Manchester in 2020. She currently works as a lead educational psychologist at Lancashire County Council. Louise completed her thesis in consultation practice and the application of motivational interviewing in consultation. We really enjoyed speaking with Cathy and Louise today and we hope that you enjoyed this episode. Hi both, it's so lovely to have you here Louise and Cathy. Um, I guess we just kind of want to start a little bit about kind of your journeys to becoming an educational psychologist. So I did a psychology degree with a view to becoming a sports psychologist and during the course of my degree I decided that a psychologist wasn't what I wanted to be at all. (laughs) I wanted to be like an events manager so I got into like exhibition management and then I worked uh, running a performing arts centre and that job was temporary so Uh, I had a careers interview and one of the things they suggested during the course of that interview um, was that I might want to become an educational psychologist. At the time you had to become a a teacher first and I didn't really fancy that but then I sort of thought I was going travelling I thought I'd have a bit of a grand plan. So I applied to some teacher courses I got on one of them I ended up doing teaching I love teaching and then I ended up um, getting on a training course I did a one-year master's in the day and then I've uh, since been working as a practitioner psychologist and as a a programme director now at uh, Manchester University. Um, my journey was a little bit uh, I think sort of straightforward in lots of ways like I didn't uh, go around the houses in lots lots of different ways I didn't know educational psychology existed at all when I um, got um, onto my undergrad I went to a uni that was really classical and traditional and very experimental in its design and applied psychology just wasn't something that we discussed at all so I left I left uni and I knew I needed to to do something with my degree the aim was never to kind of just do it for fun it was always to do it as a career so I um I thought well I'll be a clinical psychologist because that's what everybody does um when you <laughs> when you do a psychology degree and so I did loads of research experience loads of kind of um volunteering experience I worked in psychiatric hospitals I kind of um did lots of stuff while I was at uni and then afterwards and then I just kind of came back to my sleepy little town in um sort of rural north wales and 
realised that there wasn't any jobs around there at all to do with psychology, so kind of had to go sideways. So I ended up working in a post-16 specialist college, which was amazing because you just got to see everything across all different sort of needs. And I did a lot of independent self, self-help skills with the students there. And then I, I think I went for an interview back up in Scotland for a research post, but it happened to be with Aberdeen Council. And they said to me, oh, um, you didn't get the job because you didn't have quite enough clinical experience. But have you thought about applying to be an educational psychologist? We think you'd be really good at it. And I thought, oh, gosh, what's that? Looked into it. I thought, this is a bit of me. So uh, that was it. I was on the home for educational psychology, did a few years as a teaching assistant. And then I got on the course. I was very lucky to get on at Manchester. And here I am now. Both your like kind of journeys are so diverse and we've got like events management and like psychiatric hospitals and they're such interesting areas within themselves. I guess can you kind of tell us a little bit about your first experiences of consultation? Were they in your previous roles? Are they kind of being a consultant um, from your training? Were there any critical like learning points from either being a consultant or a consultee? So I think when I trained consultation was just kind of coming in for want of a better word so I think during the time I trained Patsy Wagner published um, I think she published some sort of smaller work before but she published quite a kind of seminal paper in educational psychology and practice in 2000 which I think I was very interested in not not only because of the kind of process but also because I found the kind of underpinning psychology the I think it's symbolic interactionism family systems and social constructionism I found that how that informed the the approach really interesting. And then when I worked as an EP kind of the following year, myself and a colleague were very interested because there wasn't a kind of coherent consultation model within that service. We were very interested in how Wagner's work might inform practice within our service. And I suppose enable us to have a more kind of consistent and coherent approach and challenge each other and I think we were both really surprised by the level of resistance to that that people were almost saying we you know you don't need to tell us how to do our jobs we're perfectly capable of having conversations with people around problem solving and it really didn't ever get off the ground when we had conversations people weren't really interested in taking that forward so that that was really disappointing it felt like a missed opportunity it also felt like a bit of a gap for me because quite soon after I went to another service which again didn't have a terribly coherent consultation for philosophy and then I think I went more into the the kind of academic world and I felt very much that um the work I did after that because I was I was on quite nominal contracts you know I was perhaps working half a day a week so I wasn't immersed in the service culture I felt very much that I had to kind of find my own way with consultation and define in my own mind what I thought it was and and you know how I would how I would do it so that's been quite interesting I suppose the other side to that is because my role involves 
supervising trainees and also observing trainees what I've seen over the years is a lot of very different and diverse practice around consultation depending on where the trainee has been working so I've seen consultation that's been done really well sort of process consultation but I've also seen consultation which I think has suffered as a result of being overprescribed to the point where the documentation has taken away I suppose what I think the spirit of consultation is is all about really that the approach has got in the way of of the endeavour I think would be the best way of describing it. Yeah, I think that I think that's really interesting because I've obviously not had as much experience at all. But I was kind of fresh into the um, the education psychology EP world in the sense that I'd never worked with educational psychologists beforehand. So when I was on the training course, that was my first experience. So everything that I saw was new. It was like the new offer to me. And I remember kind of sitting there in the first sort of few months of the the training course and being very you know well handled within a placement and thinking is this what it's supposed to feel like? Because the conversation was, it was very much expert led. And I, and I remember kind of leaving feeling uncomfortable that I had to hold all of this problem and it was all my responsibility. I thought, gosh, if, if this is what it's like, I don't know if this is, this is right for me, you know, um, and kind of having that feeling of ownership and it being given to me. But I think perhaps because what I was seeing wasn't necessarily consultation as I would understand it now it was it was perhaps a different thing Um, but I remember that being quite intense and then a similar kind of experience later on with it my first year on on a placement as well where I'd done some some assessment and I was told that I was going to do a consultation afterwards and I sort of put consultations in these inverted commas because it wasn't consultation but it was quite an emotive experience and I made it made me very upset afterwards and I had a little cry and I remember thinking gosh why am I why am I really upset about this and it was because the conversation was essentially me saying one thing to a parent and it being very upsetting for them which sometimes these things can be but being posed that that might be consultation was it was really confusing because I thought gosh I, d- I don't think it's supposed to be like this and so when I took on my thesis project with Kathy, it kind of was very open and she could kind of guided me really quite a lot with it and then at the same sort of time as the the thesis developing I started in my my new service and that service has a consultation model of service delivery and it's kind of the core offer um, and so that both those things together allowed me to kind of really get a better understanding of what that was and kind of get more comfortable with that feeling and not kind of leave situations like I'm carrying a heavy load from somebody else or that I'm I'm positioned as the expert necessarily at all times in a way that maybe isn't helpful and kind of throughout that conversation the conversations in that thesis supervision and discussion and things you know kind of learn and develop more and I think the whole trainee process for me was quite I'd say sort of revelationary in the sense that you learn a lot about yourself and therefore you learn a lot about your practice and the way that you want to be and the kind of personal practitioner you want to be and for me the the spirit of consultation as Kathy kind of mentioned just then aligned really nicely with the spirit of MI uh, motivational interviewing and so those things kind of really moved together and I thought that fits with me and that is much more comfortable it's a much more comfortable place to be. I was just thinking Zara when when Kathy and Louise were talking about how much of what they were describing about the degree of difference between services I'm also thinking even within a service and kind of how passionate people can be if that resonates with your own kind of recent experience and your current experience as a trainee yeah I mean I definitely feel like as a trainee 
I've obviously been in two services already and I can see the difference between how different practitioners practice um, consultation or what consultation means to them but also my own difference in a bit of what Louise said in terms of how it fits with me and kind of that whole self-enroll and how I practice consultation and it made me think a little bit about what Kathy said in terms of you know there's so many different and diverse consultation practices <laughs> I don't know I guess it's it feels very individualistic in a way to me which is a really interesting for a evidence based or evidence-informed profession who are keen on, you know, research and evaluation and frameworks, this sort of duality of wanting to have that and at the same time wanting a very individual and very much my way of, of enacting something and how we, you know, I don't think it's necessarily an either or, but to hold that kind of tension in mind is a I think a really key part both of training but also of practice. So you've recently published a paper, Framework for Developing Educational Psychologist Consultation Practice, and it was in um, Educational Psychology Research research and Practice recently. In terms of what drove your interest around a framework? So, I mean, Kathy might be able to give a little bit more of the kind of historical back sort of idea of this from where she came when she kind of proposed a thesis idea. But I think it developed really from this idea that exactly what you just said, we were an evidence-based profession, but we don't necessarily always have lots of evidence for what we're doing. And we want to hold individualism as well. And kind of how do we combine that? And it's kind of left this sort of gap in understanding or shared understanding of consultation and consultation practice. And um, the framework kind of developed organically from that kind of question of what is what is happening in educational psychology with regards to consultation practice, what's effective in consultation practice, um, and how do we make it so that um, there's an equality of offer almost in some way. So if you're going to go for a consultation, you're going to have a consultation in one place, are you going to be getting the same kind of quality components in a different place and so that's a really tricky thing to do because we didn't didn't want to be like oh you know you have to do x y and z because nobody likes that and especially not EPs and um and so it was kind of exploring that really and looking at the, the research to work out what's happening now and therefore what can we put in place to kind of develop and scaffold that shared understanding um, of a consultation and then a framework kind of aimed to kind of potentially support that understanding as a, as a whole profession. You might want to add on onto that, Cathy. Yeah, I mean, the, the background to the research is that, and how it emerged is actually quite interesting. So what the, the, the original kind of impetus was that, I think it was 2012, Gil Strait and colleagues in, in the States proposed, they, they looked at um, MI, how it was being applied within schools and essentially what they said is there's two two types of MI there's consultative MI which is basically where um, MI is used by practitioners to have conversations with adults whether that be parents or or staff or or, or adults supporting the child and um, student focused MI which is the use of MI directly in work with with students and we did some research in 2016 with Laura Snape who's a Louise's colleague now and who's kind of you know been involved in some of the commissioning around work with with MI and what that what that research found which was also a systematic literature review was that there was no published studies looking at how how MI is used consultatively within schools 
So that was the kind of part of the initial impetus for, for the research commission. And I think what, what we found, because the University of Manchester thesis is essentially in two parts, there's a systematic literature review and an empirical study. And I think as, as Louise and I got more into trying to use the literature as a basis for thinking about what we would research and how we would research, we became increasingly interested in the fact that certainly within the UK, the basis, the whole base on which it was, um, we were working from felt quite slippery. It felt that it was hard for us to actually get hold of you know some of the research was quite old there was quite there was similar work by Barkler and then work by Claridge and yourself Emma but actually um you know given how widely consultation is used and I think more widely now than ever really post-Covid and also with the increased demands on services you know post-2009 and austerity measures I think it is much more widely used and yet the research haven't really moved with that, with that kind of conceptual thinking. So I think then, Louise, we were almost, well, how, how do we do this review? What do we look at? And I think that's why we were drawn to maybe the, the, the framework, the NASC framework from the United States from the National Association of School Psychology, which seemed to offer something a bit more tangible in terms of, well, this is broadly what we think consultation should be about, rather than this sort of slightly nebulous, fluid. I mean, I guess the other thing with with consultation, how it's evolved is like the rest of the profession, because we're a tiny profession, we we do get bounced about by kind of social leg- legislative changes. So I think things like traded services, changes to the code of practice and co-production, they've, they've kind of led us to an increased use of consultation. And yet I, I feel as if there's not been a kind of coherent movement towards that. It's been very much within service development or within university development or even individual practitioner development rather than something which was more like the NAS guidelines, which these are key components, let's go with this, let's test it out, let's see what's missing. There wasn't anything to kind of anchor it to. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you said about how do we measure the impact because that was something that came out quite strongly as like a a difference. So it almost felt like we were in the UK at a different place to maybe colleagues in, in the in the US because they were already measuring impact they were measuring um, fidelity and implementation and everything and they were doing that quite hardcore um, and I wondered I, I mean I don't know but I wondered whether it's because they, they decided on what, what it was and they kind of just moved on to the next step whereas it feels like we are we're still very much having this conversation and we're just engaged in it in in such complex way that we can't come to any kind of solution as it were which has meant that how do we measure impact if we don't even know what we're measuring the impact of because we we can't as a collective decide or say or um kind of say well this is what consultation is and yes there are definitions and the aim of the paper was never to provide a definition um it was more to kind of look at the key components um because the definition doesn't cover all the components um, and the, the NASP guidelines were, they were something they looked, they said, well, reasonably, I can reasonably look at them and think, yeah, they seem like they should be 
decent components of consultation and in lieu of having anything else really to work off that was what we went with really and and kind of looked at that and we were very shocked because I remember saying to Kathy oh gosh I'm going to be here forever there's going to be so many papers and there really wasn't there really wasn't that many papers at all um, and obviously the papers weren't written for my thesis so they weren't all perfect for the for the aim of the study but but it was very um, surprising to find that there, there wasn't as much out there as that you would expect given this whole concept that we kind of anchor our whole profession on sometimes in some ways. Yeah so you mentioned the the NASP guidance for practice and these six key areas so that was around consultation as problem solving the need for effective communication for diverse audiences, collaboration across all levels, facilitating communication, collaboration, and then the application of psychological and educational principles. So when you kind of took those six, I think there are all together areas and you looked at the research that was available. Yeah, tell us a bit more about what you found out about current consultation practice and how what we're currently doing fits or doesn't fit with those six areas. Yeah, so, I mean, it's been some time since I wrote the paper, so forgive me if I'm not completely fluent. <laughs> it uh, was one of those, but I was, it, it, it kind of the key concept was that um, we're quite good at collaboration as a profession, and, and I think like we were pleased to find that really. There was a new, there's kind of a caveat within the, the collaboration uh, um, sort of point, though, which I'll discuss. Um, so as a whole, we, we collaborate collaborative practice was key key cornerstone for, for everything we did and that was something that came out in most of the papers the difficulty with kind of um, systems and system impact so um, paperwork statutory pressures the fact that we we often can't go back and do multiple reviews as part of a plan do review cycle and that being quite limiting to the the effectiveness or the kind of perceived effectiveness I suppose of a consultation and even the feel that it that kind of leaves you with after you've gone through that system you kind of have a one shot and that's that's you that's your lot as it was um there's this kind of that issue really as well and I think probably that's enhanced since we've written the paper because I mean certainly I feel that things are busier than ever aren't they you know statutory requests to through the roof and so on this idea that generally we know that we're we maybe shouldn't position ourselves as an expert because that goes against collaboration as a concept but that there are frequently times where that's something we're forced into or kind of hemmed into by service users schools and so on because they, they want an answer they're at a crisis point um, and that kind of links with our difficulty working preventatively sometimes and the fact that consultation may be offered as something that's kind of a reactive approach in that way and I think there was a there's a there's a really good point about the fact that um for me the big sh shocking thing was that there's a there's an application of psychological and educational principles is one of the criteria that we used um as part of the NAS framework and for me the big shocking thing was that wasn't widely used at all so there's a <laughs> which is amazing isn't it really because we're psychologists and, and for me like I, you should be sharing your psychological knowledge at all times in order to try and kind of upskill and support schools and service users and then they can go on and use that with other children and young people beyond the consultation so the consultation is with one child but ultimately it's with many children it's an indirect form of assessment and and help and problem solving and and so the lack of that was really really telling and I thought there was there was limited limited um conversation about the fact that what you were doing explicitly this is what educational or psychological theory I'm discussing and I'm going to share that with you and this is where my formulation is happening and this is my hypothesis and shall we explore that bit 
together it was kind of either not happening or it wasn't happening explicitly at all um which kind of wouldn't support potentially the service users thinking and thought process around around any kind of topic um and then diverse audiences there was some use of diverse audiences it felt almost tokenistic at times oh uh, you know we've we've, we've done consultation with lots of different um, ages and done it with men and women and we kind of did a range of different ethnicities and things like that but I think more than ever now this the idea of you know cultural competence and kind of being aware of that within consultation practice is much more important I think Kathy probably can talk a bit more fluently about that than I would be able to and then problem solving we all know that that consultation is for problem solving and we need to be problem solving and that kind of really was very strong in that way um how that comes about was different some papers were potentially more I would more able to do that in a way that wasn't taking that expert stance so kind of using much more kind of collaborative approaches potentially like those in line with the motivational interviewing approach, reflective listening approaches, deep listening, all that kind of thing. Um, others, potentially, what's the problem? Let's solve it. How do we get from A to B in a way that's really helpful? So there was that. But I'm going to come back to the collaboration point because I kind of said there's a caveat in that. So we we found that collaboration across all levels of involvement, that, that happened quite a lot. So we did that and we were quite good at it. We noted that collaboration was important. We, we'd say to to schools and, and service users, we, we need to be collaborative. This is a process, this is what it looks like, you know, that kind of actually all that goes on at the beginning. But actually, the, the scoring in, in other components where collaboration was key, so collaboration promoting change, collaboration among diverse audiences was ne not necessarily scored as highly. Um, and one of the explanations in, in the paper you'll see is about this concept that we, we hold different theories, that we hold a theory that we use, our theory in use, and that's what we actually are doing, that's our behaviour. And then there's our spouse theory, is what we intend to do, it's all good intentions. So I intend to be fully collaborative here, but my, my actions maybe don't match that. And so it's about being mindful and aware of that um, and kind of making steps towards change, towards true collaboration rather than tokenistic collaboration, really. Yeah, I don't know if I've got very much to to add, really. Yeah, I think I think that notion of kind of cultural competence and where that sits is because in a sense, within the framework, the NAS framework, that notion of diverse audiences is really quite vague, I think. It could be anybody. It could be diversity in terms of different professionals, diversity in terms of people from working across different contexts. It could be, you know, demographic characteristics, individual characteristics. So, but yeah, obviously post, you know, 2020 and the Black Lives Matter movement, and there's, there's been a lot of energy, I think, within the the EP profession to look again at cultural competence I think it's been it, sort of anti-racist practice in particular has been an area that's been I think very overlooked there's also the, the 2016 CP document where I didn't really think kind of it, the, 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 there hasn't been much much energy and much action arising from that it was very much you can always go back and think well this is this is all relevant but where's where's it where's it being operationalized so I think that's definitely another dimension that we need to consider and I suppose you know we're thinking about things like motivational interviewing and thinking about things like I mean this doesn't necessarily apply just to anti-racist practice but to working with with people that are perhaps like disempowered that that notion of things like power imbalance and client autonomy and accepting that the consultee rather than the consultant is responsible for finding their own solutions I think 
that some of those things really are a challenge and actually that notion of almost handing over responsibility to somebody else I think is a challenge for EPs but then I suppose if we look at something like a consultation model within from an with an MI lens then unless we get the engagement right unless we get the joint focus right unless we get the the evoking from the client unless we see the situation through their eyes then the actions aren't going to be built on anything so I suppose my my gripe with some of the practice I see is that the process documentation is like well what's the action from this meeting and you're sitting you're sitting in the meeting thinking this isn't going to happen. They're not going to do this because you haven't heard the narrative about there's lots of other children in the class that have have a, have other needs that it's difficult to cater for those children that there's not sufficient resources that curriculum's moving too quickly that COVID's had an impact on learning for lots of children. So you end up having a conversation which is different to the one that you want to which is more about maybe but we need a we need a EHC plan for this child or we need a diagnosis for this child and I think part of that is because there's a mismatch between the the expectations of the the EP wanting to promote inclusion and promote children's rights and the actual real-time experience of the consultee who probably has the same values but is actually trying to manage lots of things so I think it's about whether it's cultural competence whether it's you know working with parents or working with teaching assistants or teachers it's about that empathy it's about that understanding it's about standing in someone else's shoes and I suppose it's also that notion of the the consultee is the expert in their situation you might be have expertise in the guiding principles of of consultation but actually you're not the person that's going to make a difference for that child you're not there they are there so it's got to be kind of meaningful within their experience and I think the notion of moving to action planning without having shared understanding of how a situation is going to be adapted and tweaked and the pace of that movement towards change I think there's there's nothing foundational to to support any action so it it will just collapse what's this kind of making you think about or what's resonating for you um I don't know I feel like there was a lot of things going through my mind and I don't know as you were talking I just kept thinking back to what you said in terms of the literature review for some reason, in terms of the slipperiness and then the anchoring and consultations are slippery. And are we there? Are we kind of supposed to be a bit of anchoring? I don't know. That kind of saying kept going through my mind for some reason. But I think it is like everything both of you have said is so interesting. And I feel like in terms of like cultural competence and, and collaboration, I feel like that would look very differently to different people, the amount of co- collaboration that people want and people have and kind of what you were saying Louise right at the beginning in terms of you know teachers being at crisis point and wanting wanting you to be the experts then how do you then move into a collaborative relationship and maybe MI is helpful. Mm -hmm. It does though I think highlight the the challenge of tacking cultural competence or policy the end of something because even the notion of expertise is culturally laden So depending on who you're consulting with, they may have very, very different ideas about relationships to help and what a professional is and what should be happening. And the idea that you kind of 
consult and then, oh, it's a diverse audience. I'll stick on something different or I'll do something different because they're different to me is I think probably we're on a hiding to to not very far. If we don't kind of go back to first principles in relation to understanding, it's fundamentally a relationship. It's fundamentally a kind of a help giving, help seeking relationship that takes place professionally so anything that is affected and that has an impact on has to be part of how we see consultation. And I think it was on that point, I was the, the one, you know, you mentioned about expertise in terms of what was going through your minds, Zara, when, when Louise and, and Kathy were talking, is, is also that I guess I'm, I'm kind of struck by the idea that we experience it as a pressurizing demand from consultees or service, you know, just tell us what to do or you need to do this. But actually reframing expertise, possibly I'm not an expert in the content, not an expert in your situation. That's you. You're the expert as the, the whatever the, the professional role is. But actually to see our expertise in problem solving, to see our expertise in the process of helping. So not in the was, but being able to be skillful and take up a mantle of expertise in relation to the process of help giving and, and in relationships and in empathy. Like I'd like to think we are working towards developing an expertise in being able to be congruent, authentic, good, you know, helpful listening, empathic understanding. And kind of to emphasize that that expertise doesn't come from nowhere. You've got to practice and you really have to deliberately practice and get feedback on that practice to develop that skill set, which I suppose brings me back to this idea of how can we ever ask a consultee to engage in what we believe consultation to be if we can't agree on what it is in the first place. So I think it's all very well to say, oh, they want us to be experts. And we're, you know, when actually if we ourselves as a profession can't really work out what it is, how are they giving informed consent to participating? And how are they supposed to know that ultimately it's them that own the solution or that they really do need to feel like they can be authentic and share with us what they believe to be going? I think it's potentially quite shaming to come to a consultation and say, I don't know what to do, or I find this child so frustrating or very worrying, or as a parent to say, I'm really struggling. And to underestimate the impact of how much you are, as Shine says, in the one down position when you're having to be the help seeker. Yeah, it does feel like we're potentially doing, well, ultimately we're doing our service users an injustice, but we're also doing ourselves an injustice as well. Yeah. And I was just wondering about that concept of expertise and this idea that you have to be all knowing in every area from birth to 25 across all levels of special educational needs and be able to work with individuals, with groups, with organisations. Is there something maybe that we're doing as a profession that isn't particularly helpful when it comes to that idea or concept of expertise? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I kind of go back to MI a bit here as well. And I think one of the issues is um, whose agenda? So the, the, the problem holders requested a consultation, but then we've gone in with our agenda, whether that be you know, a, a service document or, or an approach we use. And I think obviously this, this pressure isn't there to, to deliver outcomes, to, 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 to make a change. And I think for some people, they're, they're not ready for that change. So there's this, this notion of motivation to change, readiness to change. I think isn't necessarily a feature of consultative practice. So 
I suppose I've tried to do things quite differently within my own consultative practice. I've tried to, I mean, I, ha- I still have a little prompt sheet, so I can remember to ask about hearing and vision. But aside from that, I'll, I'll try to ask open questions and then I'll try not to ask questions, essentially. I'll try just to use reflections to keep the consultee talking. And I'll try to have, you know, share decision-making if there is any as as the, as the kind of outcome of that meeting. But I think if you've got a, you know, I've seen these, you know, triplicate forms of people saying, look, please, can you list the problem concerns? Please, you know, so I've, I've got to do something. I've got to have a product here so I can prove I've, you know, into the daily rate and I'm just I just think that sometimes gets in the way of those kind of authentic discussions about what is this really like and sometimes actually just an hour where somebody therapeutically shares just how difficult their situation is might be as meaningful as trying to you know suggest different strategies which which may or may not be the person might not be ready to hear so yeah that 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 notion that we're supposed to come in with solutions and we're supposed to be worth our book I think is is maybe a barrier that maybe the understanding of the role is a real barrier to effective consultation practice and I suppose Emma that goes right back to until we've got a shared understanding with the people we work with about what consultation is, that's always going to be an issue because somebody's going to expect a consultation report, somebody's going to expect a consultation summary. And I think that almost it's getting in the way of that, that authentic practice, which is really about starting from where the consultee is at and trying to look for the next steps it's not trying to say right we need a decision teaching intervention it's trying to say well you know in your situation I hear that that's going to be difficult I hear that there's lots of pressures but what what would make everybody feel better about this situation and I think it's got to be realistic and achievable it's got to be something the person thinks they can do and this kind of donation of ideas and you, you can see the consultees get wear, worn down by it because they've already said no to three things and they said oh you know I'll just do precision teaching rather than actually or, or they don't even know what you're really getting on about this so they do it anyway and I, I just think that you know to have like some small you know it's, I suppose the impetus for change is or even understanding why change can't occur so even understanding that now isn't the right time so saying, well, you know, we'd like the child to spend more time in their class. We'd, we'd like them to be withdrawn less. But actually, now's a tricky time because, you know, these exams coming up or, you know, there's three new children in the class and we need the class to settle. So, but to have those honest conversations about when when's the time to actually do some of these things and when's, and, and, and to give that 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 control back to the person which can who can again can actually make the make the difference it's reminding me of that thing of small acts of resistance that instead of saying right well you all have to be here and we're just going to do it that way that there's something potentially possible through consultation to resist what can be an incredibly oppressive experience for for children and young people for their families for the the staff who are working with them and questioning some of the fundamental principles about why are we working the way that we're working it's making me think Kathy that you can't have consultation without thinking 
about the system within which it's operating and those kind of first principles about about what's there um which is you know in really helpful about being able to link up those two things together just one final question i think we had about about the paper specifically and we will make sure that we link the reference so that if people are interested in this great paper I absolutely recommend reading it in the at the back of the paper you've developed a kind of a consultation framework could you just uh, yeah just a little bit more for for people who may be listening about the framework and how or could you envisage it being used what kinds of things people could take away and apply to their own practice yeah so um the the framework at the, at the back is like a circular diagram just so that you know if you do look at the paper what you're looking for um it is that it is the nas guidelines but just in a circle so it, it's it, i've not added anything useful in that sense i've just made it in a way that's kind of accessible something that i imagined so when i was a trainee i thought what would i find really helpful at this moment in time and even as a newly qualified well it, it would be helpful to just have something and to take it and to pick it up and go and so it was I wanted to put it all there in one place that's less kind of offensive than a list of text so that's the kind of where it's come from really in that sense importantly though it links to um, the table three within the paper which is reflection points when I was thinking and when Kathy and I were thinking about this kind of framework yes we've got this framework we can we've got these points they seem on the surface you know they don't really need deep operationalization to understand them they kind of seem obvious um but then fine you go away you think okay in my consultation i'm going to focus on maybe doing two or three of these things and i'm going to really make sure that i kind of cover them and, and be comprehensive in them um, and then but then so what so you've done that you've done your consultation you kind of put into practice some of the points and then you want to have a conversation afterwards don't you about what went well what maybe didn't go so well what might I want to do next time is there an area I want to focus on um, and so the the table kind of has got a whole bunch of just suggested reflection points and in my head I was imagining this to be used within a supervision kind of concept and in a either you know you can go away yourself as an individual and, and reflect on that but if you had if you could do it with somebody else they didn't necessarily need to be a senior supervisor it just you know even a peer supervisor just to think oh well I did this and I thought that went really well and actually I'm going to take that next time and keep that but maybe actually next time I, I might want to do this and how might I word that might I think about that if I'd have done this would it have gone this way you know all those kinds of questions really and so for me those things kind of go hand in hand as kind of practical tools to just go away and have a try um, and they're by no means kind of comprehensive in the sense that I say that this is the truth and you should do that and that's it. It's it's merely a suggestion of, of what you might like to do and how you might like to kind of scaffold and cement and anchor your anchor your consultative practice to key points. Because it may be that you find after a few sessions that you can keep doing all of them, but you're really not getting that application of psychological and educational principles. And, and actually, maybe that's something that would be really helpful. Um, and so you could kind of focus on that within your kind of supervision experience, really. So kind of that's how I imagined it to be used. And that's kind of where it came from, really. Yeah, I think I, I had a look at the reflective questions. And I thought they were really helpful, because actually, it reminded me of what something we were talking about right at the beginning of the episode which it kind of allows for that individuality like you said it's not giving you a set you have to do this and that it kind of just like okay well how could I do this better so it gives you a bit of a framework to infer your individually individuality back to if that makes sense it's not kind of pigeonholing you if that makes sense which I quite like yeah that was key and it was key for me and I presume for, for Kathy because we you know it's quite a 
our process was we were intertwined at some points and it, it's kind of I didn't want to be that kind of teacher type approach of you must do this and this is the right way to do it and you know because of what what difference is that that goes against all of my principles and all of the things that we've discussed in this whole kind of episode t- today and and I wanted it to be um, something that people could pick up and they might come from a psychodynamic background they might come from you know a kind of a completely different kind of person-centered background they might be so they might be so far they might be quite behavioralist you know but that's okay because we these things are all important um and they can all be applied and so it was kind of you know a theoretical in that sense and that was quite key for me I mean we've mentioned it a little bit is is the point about motivational interviewing and knowing obviously Kathy's hugely extensive work on MI and finding out quite recently Louise that you've also kind of been researching uh, motivational interviewing we were very privileged that we had Grace Giles on as a previous guest who actually she was also interested in using motivational interviewing and consultation and we were just yeah if there was anything else you wanted to add about for people who may be less familiar with MI but really interested in consultation what kinds of things in addition to what you've already described might MI offer or why would it be a good thing to signal people towards if they were keen to find out more yes so For people that aren't familiar at all with motivational interviewing, um, kind of very potted history, it's got its roots in essentially the treatment of addictions and adherence to kind of medical schedules. So the, the originator was William Miller and he was a clinical psychologist working in the field of addictions, wanting to apply person-centred principles within what was essentially a very behaviourist model of, of, of change. And what he was finding was that he was being asked to work with people who, who had reasons for maintaining a behaviour and reasons not to change. So he was very interested in, the, in this idea that, you know, people needed to be supported to explore and make their own decisions about change rather than having change kind of being threatened with change or um, because that, that wasn't sustainable. So that that's sort of where it's come from. And the theories evolved. So there's now kind of three main elements. One is the, the spirit, which is kind of the philosophy. And I won't sort of go into detail, but it's broadly that the approach would be non-judgmental. It would support clients' autonomy. It would, the, the process would be used to help the person that you're working with identify reasons why change would make sense to them rather than the, the, the consultant posing and I suppose this notion that we've already talked about that it's a partnership between two experts the expert in the process and the expert in the context so the consultant obviously knows how to do motivational interviewing and the consultee is the expert in their self their, 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 their situation and what what is and not feasible at, at this moment in time but the spirit there's the and um, the process and I've, again I sort of touched on those with their they're hierarchical, so you talk about engaging, focusing, evoking, and then planning. So you've got to go through all the stages till you actually look at action planning. And the other, um, I suppose, that the, the thing if people are just starting out with motivational interviewing, I think probably the most useful skill that would be um, the most useful aspect to use within consultation would be the skills. The skills are defined by the the acronym ORS, and that simply stands for open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. And it's essentially using those four skills as a way of inner communication style. So rather than asking lots of 
closed questions, for example, rather than following your own agenda. The idea is that you would use affirmations to elicit client consultee strengths and attributes and values and you would use reflections so that the person feels heard so they can reflect on their own situation and you would use sort of summaries to kind of pull that information together so it involves talking very little really and a lot of a lot of active listening and I think one of the things for me that I've, I've ended up doing recently within my practice work is a lot of phone consultations and I think phone consultations with MI are a really good place to start because you can have notes jotted down you know you can you can you've got a little bit more thinking time somehow there's less to manage with a phone phone consultation so I think yeah if I I was sort of talking to somebody that didn't know anything about MI I would say start with the skills start with trying to ask more open-ended questions look at your questioning look at how you can give affirmations without it feeling you know without it you know evidence-based so you know I I hear from what you're saying that absolutely everything you're talking about suggests that you you want the very best for your child and the steps you've already taken suggests what a you know determined parent you are in terms of moving forward and then just the you know the the reflections and as I say this you know if you go into my theory it can become very complicated but I think it's just listening what the person says and trying to make sense of it and feeding that back to them and if you get it a bit wrong they'll correct you so don't don't be don't be frightened of it but yeah as a as I say I mean I set out to do consultation using a schedule and I don't do that now I really just do all and try and maybe do two or three summaries and maybe ask one open-ended question at the beginning and then another one if the conversation gets a bit stopped but really I don't need to I can just use reflections to keep that conversation going and to know for the person to know that they've been heard so they can kind of and I suppose the other the other thing for me I work in a school so in a sense I'm not as pressured to kind of get an outcome within the, the course of that consultation but I suppose you know change happens at the pace of the consultee and sometimes people feel they haven't done enough but actually if we understand change processes we can only take people to the next stage if they're not even thinking about a change we're not going to see a change you know we're not going to have conversations with me that change things then the conversation might be that there's a couple of things that they might just want to go away and think about think why that might be something they want to consider so you know where people are knowing where people are in terms of readiness for change is quite important I think as a as a lens for consultation. That's such a good point, the point around change. I also think, though, the focus on awe is particularly about not asking a question every single time is the antidote to what can feel almost like an interrogation. And I don't think it's intended, but I think the impact on a consultee is as if they're in one of those um, those police dramas with the light shining their face and kind of a barrage of questions coming from a very good place about wanting to try and understand, but ending up feeling that yeah, it's it's almost like an interview as opposed to a dialogue or a communication between two people. And to try and again, that deliberate practice around focusing on how many questions am I asking here? How many times have I affirmed? Have I reflected? And does everything have to be a question? Yeah, it's just such a valuable thing to, to kind of emphasize to, to both trainees who are learning consultation, but absolutely, I would say for people who've been practicing for for some time yeah and I think it's fine to 
kind of have a, you know, it's fine to kind of go through a questionnaire and write things in, but let's not call that a consultation. Let's call that information gathering. And let's be clear about why that might not work in terms of moving people forward. That might work for an assessment purpose. But the two things are quite different. If we if we think that's consultation, we're going to be get very frustrated by our own consultation practices. That that's where the documentation is leading us to. Yeah, I, I agree. I think sometimes the the pa- the way the paperwork is kind of laid out with the different sections can feel like we do have to have like a answer or a solution kind of mapped out for us. Touched on supervision already today a little bit, but I guess when thinking about it, what are some of the key takeaways that you would like supervisees and supervisors to take away from your work and is there anything you would particularly want to emphasize about supervision and consultation this one I think so other than what I've already spoken about with regards to the kind of the use of the framework and the way that you might use that I think I might ask Kathy on this one because this is something that's quite I'm quite interested in as well because I'm, I'm going to be starting my supervisory journey soon so I'm excited for that and so um yeah I'm going to hand that to you Kathy if that's okay um well I suppose for me like kind of because I've, I've already talked about MI within the context of consultation I could probably always also talk about MI within the context of supervision but again I think it's that the process the actual you know I've never really thought about this before but I actually think consultation and supervision are probably very very similar philosophically in that what you're trying to support I mean, I suppose there is a kind of, you know, aside from the kind of line management agenda, which is, you know, how many schools have you got and are you, are you delivering your time? I'm not I'm not really going to, I'll, I'll ignore that sort of part about the kind of administrative supervision and talk about the kind of clinical supervision. But in terms of the clinical supervision, I think, you know, the principles are the same. It, it's about the supervisee's journey and their autonomous development and I think you are there as a supervisor to to come alongside them on that journey really and to to not necessarily be the providable knowledge I mean that might be that might be helpful um and it might be that that I mean it's quite interesting I'm supervising somebody at the moment and we've kind of discussed different models and actually what we've fallen into is more of a kind of you know this is a bit like one I did where it's at where it is a bit more information providing but we've sort of contracted that and that that seems to be the most useful thing for that person but I think that it is very much about that. Yeah, it, it, it's the per, it's the, it's supervisee's time, not your time as a supervisor, aside from let's say the administrative demands. So I mean, yeah, it, it will be interesting. I think to to look at almost supervisory models and to see what features of those in terms of things like problem solving and guidance and I mean there's a notion isn't there within supervision of this this safe space and I wonder if it's anything we've ever actually applied to consultation I wonder if I wonder if consultees feel that consultation is a safe space for them and my guess will be that, that it's not but if it's a safe if it's not a safe space and there's not trust, and they 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 think there's somebody that's you know we're going we're going to tell them off, we're going to tell them they're not doing the job properly as a parent, or there's going to be a judgment. 
I wonder if actually, because we get so little time, don't we? We get so little time with, for example, a parent. We might get one meeting and we'd like to think that that meeting would have some sort of positive impact for the, the child, the young person, the family. I mean, that's a big ask in itself. We've, I think we've got to be sort of fairly humble about, about what we what the difference we can make. But if we can have a conversation that perhaps changes the direction or changes self-perception or you know offers hope then that's a big that's a big shot really that's a big a big opportunity for us so it's important that we do get it right it's important that we do kind of create that this the same sort of situation that would that we would create for a supervisee so yeah I don't I don't know I mean as I say it's never it's never occurred to me before that that there might be similarities between the two I mean I guess there's differences too but I wonder what we could maybe learn from supervisors and I guess the other thing is some of the consultations we're having perhaps are more things like you know work with you know ELSAs there's almost that where does supervise where does supervision end and consultation start so I, I wonder if that's something that perhaps could we could use maybe Louise to, to to revisit the framework to strengthen the model it's interesting actually I've got um I'm working with a a year one trainee at the moment and the, the focus of her research is what should trainees know at the end of their training which are equipment for effective consultation practice so obviously there's going to be a supervision element to that that's going to lend itself to a shared framework philosophy which supervisors and trainees are going to have, be, have to be a part of I think and have a shared language around so maybe work like that would have potential for wider service development. I mean, generally things I think that you develop for use with trainees have wider application within the within the profession anyway. But yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose I've, got, I've kind of come full circle. But I think you know, Louise's uh, table three is a really good starting point for conversations about how supervisory practice can develop. But I suppose it's it's also just that notion of you know what do we mean by consultation supervision and what does that look like and where you know where does it meet and also you know if we haven't got a shared understanding how easy is it to park our ideas about that so I you know I might say well I do MI consultation what about somebody that wants to do I don't know group process perukes group process consultation and I'm not an expert in that so how do we how do we reconcile maybe our conceptual differences so that I'm not constantly saying well this would be much better if you used yours so I think there's, there's definitely work to be done I think to think about how we can better supervise but maybe the starting point for all of that is just more open conversations about what it means and not having to kind of lock ourselves away and be defensive about our own consultation practice to actually share expertise and you know drawn right back to that notion of a service day where it wasn't safe to, to say well I do this and I do this and how does this link to bath I mean if that's that that may not be the situation anymore let's hope it's not but if people are still being feeling defensive about Absolutely. what they do and unable to pass that on in, in, in terms of you know because I think one of the trainees said that one of the session and said well you'll, you'll just learn it you know just watch what I do and you'll see but didn't necessarily have the kind of internalized script to articulate what it was they do they did and I think that that's problematic for trainees because they're like well what, 
Awesome. So it's a really valuable thing to kind of to end on. Our last question that we ask everybody who comes on, if there was one book, one article, one chapter, one thing that you'd say, read this about consultation or a bit more expansive that changed your thinking or that you find yourself going back to again and again, is there something that you'd recommend? I mean, I would still say the work by Wagner, really, because I... I do think that it still has resonance today. It is psychologically informed. It leads you to it all sorts of, you know, so I remember reading the word by Wagner and getting really interested in symbolic interactionism. And I think, again, that has links with, with MI. So I, I think as a starting point, you know, it, it, it can be defined as a process, but the underlying principles of it are still strong and still relevant. So, um, I mean, I know lots of people will have come across that, but if people haven't as a starting point, and it might be something people have missed because it, it, is, it, it is a while ago now, but, you know, definitely, I think that that that's still where we're at and I think that's probably the, the best template our profession has still for you know a coherent understanding of what of what consultation is yeah I would second that and then I suppose it's not a specific book or anything but I suppose one thing that made me feel much more secure in, the, in my sort of being as a practitioner and therefore my consultative practice is the MI stuff and it is that that um it's almost a security and a familiarity of like this is what we can do and we know that this is works and this is helpful so anything that gives you that basis so really like and I always um, recommend just going right back to the the, the, the core basics that there's a British Medical Journal um, module and that covers the outlines of uh, MI in brief consultations and that's wonderful so have a little look into that and, and see how that feels. Amazing thank you both so much for being on the show today we honestly really enjoyed listening to the conversation. You're welcome thank you for having us.